Pluto Press is one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. Sick of Amazon dominating the audiobook market, they have developed a new list of audiobooks for some of their most popular titles, now available to buy directly from the publisher. Pluto Audio includes the classic Lost in Work by Amelia Horgan, a book that Grace Blakely called Fascinating and Absorbing, a corrective to the widespread view that anyone can find fulfilment through their job. And also The Brutish Museums by Dan Hicks, which was one of the New York Times best art books of the year, and which helped spur museums across the West into returning stolen artefacts to their countries of origin. If you buy at least one audiobook from plutobooks.com before the end of December, you are in with a chance of winning one of three sets of the entire list. Go to tiny.one forward slash PTO audio to discover Pluto Audio and download groundbreaking radical ideas to listen to on the go. The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Nancy Fraser. We talked about her new book, Cannibal Capitalism, how our system is devouring democracy, care and the planet and what we can do about it. In the book, Nancy argues that we need to move away from seeing capitalism solely in economic terms and instead reckon with how capital is always reliant on cannibalising the non-economic from the natural environment to providers of care and social reproduction, and from the political sphere to racialised populations subject to brutal expropriation outside of the wage system. Today's episode is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Haymarket Books, who have lots of great left-wing titles perfect for listeners like you. One that you might like to check out is The Sinking Middle Class, A Political History of Debt, Misery and the Drift to the Right, by David Rodiger. In The Sinking Middle Class, acclaimed historian David Rodiger skillfully challenges the the save-the-middle-class rhetoric that dominates our political imagination. The slogan misleads us regarding class, nation and race, Rodiger argues, and talk of middle-class salvation reinforces myths holding that the US is a providentially white, middle-class nation. As Robin D.G. Kelly puts it, as the nation burns and the future appears uncertain, David Rodiger delivers another incisive, timely, clear-eyed analysis of class and race in America. His point is clear. Another world won't be built by pollsters or slick election strategies aimed at saving the middle class. We have to grow a movement. You can find The Sinking Middle Class at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the US and the UK can receive free shipping on orders over $25 or £20 respectively. And now to today's interview. Nancy Fraser is Professor of Philosophy and Politics at the New School for Social Research. She is the author of Fortunes of Feminism, From State-Managed Capitalism to Neoliberal Crisis, 
and The Old is Dying and the New Cannot Be Born, amongst many other works. Her new book, which was the topic of our conversation, is Cannibal Capitalism, How Our System is Devouring Democracy, Care and the Planet, and What We Can Do About It. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's episode, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. You can get access to extended versions of this and other PTO episodes at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. So in the book, you begin by making the case for a more expansive definition of capitalism, which, as you describe, is often discussed primarily in economic terms. And instead, you describe capitalism as a type of society or societal order. And you write that the term capitalism cries out for clarification. The word is commonly used to name an economic system based on private property and market exchange, wage labour and production for profit. But that definition is too narrow, obscuring rather than disclosing the system's true nature. And instead, you conceptualise capitalism as a system that, as you put it, empowers a profit-driven economy to prey on the extra economic supports it needs to function. Can you explain briefly why you argue for this more capacious description of capitalism uh, and what it is about more economistic definitions of capitalism that you find ultimately unconvincing? Well, I think the problem is that uh, that this economic or economistic view of capitalism uh, leaves us with no way to connect uh, the capitalist uh, form of society to non-economic or seemingly non-economic problems to which I believe it is closely connected. And I'm thinking about the ecological crisis that we're now facing, the political crises that we're now facing, the uh, crisis of care or social reproduction, the crisis of uh, racial justice, migration, uh, all of these things, I believe, do have uh, a, a, that have a lot to do with capitalism as a form of social order. Uh, but we don't see those connections because we're too fixated on the idea that it's merely an economy. We'll perhaps go through in turn some of those different as you describe them, these, these sort of background conditions which enable capitalism to, to exist as a system, um, as you say, ecological, the, the political, uh, social reproduction and, and race. But obviously you take up this term cannibal, and, and the title of the book is Cannibal Capitalism. And on, on first glance, that could seem to be uh, something of a rhetorical flourish or, or hyperbole describing the destructiveness of the system, but it's actually used quite carefully. And it's used to, as I read it, to, to tease out those background conditions and to see capitalism as, as preying on the non-economic. Can you talk a bit about why you took up the term? Well, I have to confess that it was in part because I liked the sound of cannibal capitalism. It kind of has a <laughs> has a nice ring. Yeah. But for but before I landed on that terminology, I had already for several years been developing this idea that there are additional so-called contradictions of capitalism, which lead to crisis uh, proneness of capitalism, additional beyond those that many people uh, have already uh, theorized that have to do with the economic contradictions. And um, I've been very influenced by the 
guys I think of as the two Carls, Karl Marx on the one hand, Karl Polanyi on the other. And it's really Polanyi who drew my attention in a very sustained way to this business of how the capitalist uh, system licenses the economy or the, or the powerful actors within it to quote unquote cannibalize, uh, you know, the nature, uh, the energies and capacities that we have for caring for our families, uh, the public goods and that are supplied by the political system, the wealth and health and, and lands of uh, co- conquered, subjugated, racialized populations. The system doesn't work, in my opinion, without those background conditions. And yet the the very economy that needs those to support it is also licensed to just tear through them, to, to chew them up, spit them out, to, to take no responsibility for replenishing or repairing them. All of that to me is the sort of the quote unquote Polanyian side of what's wrong with capitalism over and above the Marxian side, where I think there are also plenty of other things wrong with capitalism. But I had been uh, thinking through these, this, uh, what you call this preying of the economic aspect of the society on the, on these non-economic background conditions for a long time. And then it struck me that, um, the term cannibalization, which I had used casually here and there, you know, was a good term to sort of sum, sum this up. And then as I, as I said, it, it had a good sound. So I just ran with it. As you say, capitalism appears to be unable to attend to the background conditions that enable it. It, it, it destroys the uh, natural environment. It attacks the, the systems of, of social care that it needs in order to have workers and, and consumers and so on. And you describe capitalism in, in this sense functioning in a, in a sort of in a blind way. Why does it have this character? Why is it unable to maintain its own supports in this way? And why why is there this sort of permanently a crisis prone tendency, as you say, across a wide field way beyond the economy? Well, as a social order, a societal order, capitalism really institutionalizes a number of uh, distinct institutional arenas that it divides from one another. So it divides the, the arena it thinks of as the economy from the one that it thinks of as the state or the political order. And it divides uh, what it calls production from what many people have called reproduction, social reproduction, uh, as well as biological reproduction. Uh, it divides society from non-human nature. These divisions, in my view, are structural and deeply entrenched in a capitalist society. And then the next step is that it, in setting up the divisions, the society locates something it calls economic value in only those relations, activities, and objects that are monetized. So everything else that doesn't enter immediately and directly into this monetized uh, world is somehow uh, seen as not having value. I mean, in a technical sense of value. It might have some sort of sentimentalized you know, uh, worth or importance, but not value in the hard-headed sense. And that 
is a real recipe for trouble because it uh, gives uh, those whose job, so to speak, is to accumulate value every reason to rip off anything they can as cheaply as possible that is defined as outside the sphere of value. I think maybe the, the clearest case of this would be the, uh, the, the, all those uh, activities that we, we think of under the, the terminology of care, um, which uh, most of which have not been recognized as work, have not been remunerated as work, uh, ha- may have been sentimentalized and valued in that sense, but have never been uh, accorded value in the sense that matters to capitalist actors. And so they have every reason to free ride on the caring activities, the unpaid care work or severely underpaid care work that's performed largely but not only by women. Uh, in capitalist societies, they have every reason to free ride on that, to to sort of to cannibalize it, to not worry about how to ensure that it is not being you know devoured and corroded and uh, and so on. Uh, that's one example of um, of of why the system is primed at in a deep level. Uh, it, it, I talk about uh, the, the four Ds uh, in, in the book, uh, four words that begin with the letter D that kind of, uh, in a way, encapsulate or summarize the, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say here. Uh, on the one hand, the system divides those realms and activities and relations that have economic value from those that don't. On the other hand, it makes the the economic domains dependent on the non-economic domains, and it disavows that dependence, which therefore means that it doesn't take on any responsibility for the, for repairing those domains. And the, the overall effect is then to sort of periodically destabilize the whole system through this cannibalization. Process. This is why I think the system is inherently crisis prone, which is not to say that you're uh, facing uh, acute crises uh, at every point in time, but the, the dysfunctions do accumulate and there are periodic uh, outbreaks of acute crisis. And I think that we are living in one of those moments right now. And so there was there were certain. I mean, uh, obviously, the, the idea of, of spatial and temporal fixes uh, springs to mind. That there are sort of ways in which those crises can be resolved in the short term, but in the long term, there's always there's always a bill to to be paid. Just on the on the way in which capitalism has to to free ride, whether that's upon unpaid care work or uh, environmental inputs, uh, natural resources that are expropriated, and 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 so on. It's for that reason that you argue, if I'm reading you correctly, that the notion of a sort of totalizing commodification of society is not, in fact, uh, possible. That that very dystopian imagining isn't really right because it assumes that capital can profit without these background conditions. 
Yes, that, that's quite right. And, um, and I just want to say first that I, I try in the book, I don't, maybe I may have missed a few points, but I try in the book to really, uh, be careful when I talk about free riding. It's capital that free rides. Capitalism is my name for the whole, uh, as you said, expansive social order. Yes. Capital is the dynamic force that is dedicated to amassing economic value. Having said that, so um, I don't think that capital, the economic uh, part of the society, can internalize everything. I realize that there have been strands of anti-capitalist critical theorizing, parts of the Frankfurt School, for example, that uh, envisioned the, the dystopian uh, possibility of a, of a world in which everything had become commodified. But I think that's almost more of a sci-fi uh, idea than a real possibility. Mm. And here, I'm more uh, impressed by and following the arguments of that other Carl, Carl Polanyi, who uh, famously uh, claimed that the idea of a self-regulating market, which was what that would mean, was actually a contradiction in terms that um, that a, a a society that had turned everything into marketized uh, commodities and social relations would be actually impossible. That in his terms, destroy its own substance, consume itself. Mm. And I think that Polanyi was right on that point, that uh, there's a, a sort of an economic argument to be made here. I mean, one point is that if everything became a commodity, then in effect, everything would buy and sell at its, at, at its value in the sense of the costs of its reproduction what it actually costs to uh, reproduce, uh, let's say, coal as a commodity or something else. Now, in that case, um, I don't see where uh, capitalist profit would come from, frankly, because it's not the case that profit comes only from un, uh, surplus labor time that's not paid for at the point of production. That's the official Marxian view of what surplus value is. But profit is bigger than surplus value. Profit comes not only from that, but also from what Jason Moore calls cheap nature, inputting uh, natural uh, resources or background environmental conditions that have not been paid for and that are therefore getting consumed in ways that is going to be uh, bite you in the you know what later down the line, or it's going to uh, you know cause uh, ecological trouble. So in general, uh, I don't think everything can be commodified, and I think also at the empirical level, we can see the actual history of capitalism is not about just bringing more and more people, more and more lands, more and more stuff into the official economy. It's also at the same time that it's bringing in some people and some things, some lands, some chunks of nature, it's also expelling others. You need only look at the massive uh, favelas and uh, shanty towns and slums uh, all over the world, at the populations uh, 
that are expelled from the official economy. It's an incorporation slash expulsion dynamic, not one that is just bringing more and more inside until there's nothing left outside. So I think that 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 dystopian fantasy has led those engaged in the critique of capitalism down a false road or a blind alley. I think we're much better off looking at the sort of uneven and combined processes by which some things are brought inside and others are cast out. Is it your view then that that dystopian fantasy, as as you put it, of of total commodification, why do you think it is that, that that has been believed at certain points in time on the Marxist left? Is it simply pessimism? Is is it partly being sort of too impressed by the story that, that capital likes to tell itself of being, you know, immensely uh, productive and, and, and capable and ignores what you describe, the free riding and, and expropriating character of, of capital, which, which it depends on, you know, simply stealing from people and, and from the earth? Or do you think it is fundamentally about this inattention to anything beyond the economic? I definitely think that that pessimism is a part of this story. It would be interesting to track, um, I I haven't done it, but, you know, to to actually look carefully historically at what are the periods uh, during which that dystopian fantasy has become sort of the palpable common sense of some parts of the left and what are the periods in which it falls away. you know, in the case of the Frankfurt School, it has a lot to do with fascism and the feeling that, you know, one is living in a, in a bestial uh, world where one has no capacity really to uh, to change it or to resist it. And it's completely understandable that there are times when, when people do feel that way. I'm breathing a sigh of relief today, which is the day after the U.S. midterm elections, <laughs> that uh, a lot of the uh, election deniers and 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 so on, uh, uh, who, whom Trump uh, got in, got to run uh, for office, were actually defeated. Not all, but so I, I mean, I I can understand this and and sympathize it. Another version of this, by the way, if I could stray a little bit further afield is the popularity now of a perspective known as Afro-pessimism, which, you know, thinks that the, that anti-blackness is, is, is a deep-seated ontology in modernity, and, and there's almost nothing you could do that has any chance of actually budging it. There are times when such pessimism becomes... Um, and a resonant where, where, where people feel uh, attracted to ideas like that. Even if that's understandable, such ideas, in my view, are counterproductive and that it is uh, much more uh, useful to develop an analysis of the society that shows where, how, and why critique is possible. It, that's not to say that critique is always uh, so powerful that it, it wins out. But the fact that we're even having this discussion shows that, you know, we are, uh, you know, taking a critical perspective and that therefore such perspective must be possible. And if, if we're, if our minds are totally colonized by, you know, consumerism, commodification, uh, 
uh, et cetera, or certain stories that people tell about uh, neoliberal subjectivation. If, if that's all there is, then we couldn't even be right uh, talking about it in this way. So my idea is that the society, um, because of those institutional divisions I mentioned earlier, actually has within it a multiplicity of different normative ideas, different moral values, different principles, different um, even emotional valences, and that not all of these are economistic. So the, the sphere of care, for example, generates right notions of mutual responsibility, sharing, uh, solidarity, uh, whatever. These might be, uh, I don't want to romanticize them, they're, they're often very restricted to, you know, small groups of, of people or people who are like me, so does whatever that means. They're, they're not necessarily adequate, but they are different from ideals of efficiency, self-interest, et cetera, et cetera. And it's important uh, to acknowledge that just as the political sphere of a capitalist society, right, uh, relies on, um, you know, a certain, uh, however restricted notions of the, of the public good and of, uh, you know, citizenship, uh, voting, et cetera, et cetera, um, uh, which, however thin and inadequate ultimately these are, are maybe part of what uh, saved us in yesterday's election in the United States uh, from, you know, just tur turning over the whole political system to, to uh, election deniers. So I'm trying to paint a picture here of a system that is internally differentiated and complex, and that there are resources within it uh, that can be mobilized against the economizing logic, just as the economizing logic uh, has this imperializing tendency to, to try to want to take over everything. There's also pushback. Now, what, what does it take? The next question is to sort of empower that pushback and to, you know, sort of develop it in a way that can actually lead to some positive and even emancipatory social change. That's a, a big question. But if we start from the idea that there is no pushback, we'll never get uh, to that, posing that important question. Just going back to the two Carls for a moment. So in the case of Karl Marx, what's your view on how he understood capitalism? Do you, do you think he was guilty of ignoring the background conditions you, you describe? Do you think he had that kind of economistic perspective or, or, do, or do you think that was really something that characterised more people within the, within the Marxian tradition who, who came later and perhaps tended to, to foreground that aspect of his, of his thinking? That's a, a really complicated question, um, which, you know, if, if we sort of uh, pursued it at any length, we'd uh, get up deep into the, the weeds of uh, Marx's interpretation. So let me sort of give a short answer. Um, first of all, I don't think Marx uh, per se in, uh, was uh, or certainly intended to develop an economistic uh, view of capitalism. I think and maybe this becomes especially clear in a, a work like the Grundrisse, um, 
but also in, in Das Kapital, I think it's very clear that he's trying to develop a critique of the political economists of his time, uh, at least some of whom did have an economistic view of the system. Um, and if you read Marx carefully, you'll find many, many points uh, in, at which he the um, the, the, the sort of sphere of care work or social reproduction uh, comes in. He, he's aware that, that it exists and is important. You'll find uh, uh, places which at which the ecological uh, comes in. Uh, John Bellamy Foster has done a great job of, of sort of uh, making uh, visible the, 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 the subtext, let's say, of the ecological within Marx's writings. All that stuff is there. Uh, even the, the the racial question. I mean, he was famously, uh, you know, a, a correspondent for the uh, the Herald Tribune, uh, writing about the American Civil War and, and and race in the United States. He's very aware of that as well. But the question is, um, do do these um, these topics that that he's very aware of? ever get conceptualized in such a way that they become right conceptually part and parcel of what capitalism is. Uh, and I have to say there, uh, I fear not. I, I fear that that, you know, he set himself a task to try to understand and critique political economy. He did that uh, uh, very well uh, from one perspective. But he didn't go on to theorize uh, what a better social theory of the whole social order would look like, one in which the ecological, the social reproductive, the political, the racial imperial would actually emerge as structural features of the society. And as I've tried to do that in this book, I have never seen myself as refuting Marx. I've seen myself as trying uh, uh, to the best I can, I don't mean to sound grandiose, but trying to sort of complete him, trying to sketch out at least, you know, where, where what I think a, a, a Marx or a, a Marxist uh, would or could or, or should have uh, tried to do to bring these things into the structural uh, uh, theorizing uh, of Marxism. And, you know, uh, you, one can go all the way back to Rosa Luxemburg, to the argument that she made in um, her great book uh, on, uh, on, uh, on accumulation, uh, you know, which, which, which tries to get into the technicalities in a way that I would never want to <laughs> throw myself into to try to show that the that even the the equations uh, of uh, expanded uh, reproduction won't work without the assumption of what what she would call an outside meaning uh, the imperial uh, uh, the colonized uh, lands and, and and peoples and so on so there's been this is a long uh, discussion about you know what's inside capitalism and what's outside capitalism. What I am trying to say is that we if we got to stop thinking of it only as an economy and treating all this other stuff as outside, um, 
know where, because once you do that, then everything becomes contingent. Then you're, there is no basis for saying that sexism or racism or de-democratization have a structural basis in the society. They're just historical contingencies uh, because capital is something narrow. Capitalism is something narrow. And basically what I'm trying to do is find a way to say that those things are structural. And, uh, you know, maybe uh, the the arguments I've given in favor of that will persuade uh, some people and not others, but at least that's what what we should be arguing about uh, instead of uh, clinging to that narrow economistic idea. I suppose we should perhaps not be too hard on on Marx in terms of the deficits in his work in this sense, because obviously he was writing at a, an earlier time when it was much less clear the sort of more general form of of capitalism what that would that would be. And obviously he has the notion of primitive accumulation, this idea of the expropriation of, of the commons, which enables capital to first emerge and and develop. And your argument, and it, it's it's an argument made elsewhere by others as well, is that. The notion that this is a sort of originary moment is is true, but doesn't cover everything that happens, and that in fact um, this process of expropriation continues and it's going on uh, all the time, all the way through the history of capital, right up to uh, right up to the present moment. So you've touched on the question of of race a little bit, and and the the second chapter of the book is entitled "Glutton for Punishment: Why Capitalism Is Structurally Racist," and. Here you explain how your expanded definition of capitalism helps to make sense of race in capitalist societies and why it is, as you contend, that capitalism is structurally racist uh, and that racism is is not contingent, as you say, or just a a residual phenomena of, of an earlier societal order. And that therefore it is close to impossible to imagine a form of capitalism that is that is not racist. And crucial to your argument here is the nexus of exploitation and expropriation. Can you talk about that that nexus and, and can you explain why uh, racism is for you this this structural feature? Uh, yeah, this has a, a, a lot to do with what you just said about uh, primitive accumulation. Sort of the first stage in the history of capitalism, what's often called mercantile or commercial capitalism, it's the, uh, the age of the sort of uh, discoveries of the so-called new world and of this, and of conquest and of... Uh, you know, predation, subjugation, brutal uh, enslavement, uh, and just looting and, and, and theft and so on. And, and Marx thought that's where, um, you know, the, the wealth that becomes capital is originally stockpiled. And, you know, people have thought that, that as you said, that that, uh, that kind of expropriative moment eventually, you know, uh, disappears or becomes uh, much uh, less important as industry develops and as the system accumulates uh, wealth and capital more and more exclusively by exploiting free workers who are paid wages that cover the costs of their living, their reproduction, uh, while capital takes the surplus value they create. That's the standard story that exploitation is the central mechanism of capital accumulation. And, you know, what what I said before is that, you know, that's really not so, that there is a lot of expropriation that continues. And what I, I do in that chapter 
is to sort of sort of th- try to redescribe um, how accumulation works uh, at, in terms of a nexus of exploitation and expropriation, two faces of uh, of accumulation that and correspond to two faces of domination, uh, but that are interimbricated uh, with one another and function almost like like two pistons of an engine uh, that, you know, uh, work together. And following W.E.B. Du Bois, who has influenced me greatly on this point, it's clear to me that um, the, the distinction between expropriation and exploitation corresponds roughly to the global color line. And um, what I, uh, so I tried to make a structural argument that accumulation, that uh, that exploitation is profitable only because it rests on a disavowed background of expropriation. Um, I mean, you can think of this in terms of uh, some nifty uh, little uh, uh, slogans like behind Manchester stands Mississippi, right? The iconic uh, textile mills of the early in- industrial system in England, uh, in north of, in the north of England, uh, only works because of the cheap raw cotton that is made available by the uh, black slaves in, uh, in Mississippi. But that's the same thing is true today. Behind Cupertino stands Kinshasa, right? Cupertino is the headquarters of Apple. Kinshasa, or, or Con- the Democratic Republic of Congo, is where the uh, the lithium from uh, t- for Tesla's batteries, the coltan for Apple's iPhone, is mined on the cheap by enslaved or semi-enslaved, and certainly not fully free workers, including some enslaved children, by the way. So we, we still have this uh, imbrication of these two X's, exposed exploitation and expropriation, it still corresponds to a color line. Uh, am I right in thinking it's also correct to say that, that that nexus is not strictly geographically demarcated? It's not that exploitation alone is going on in the in the so-called capitalist core and that expropriation it defines the situation in, in what's called the periphery or the global south, but rather that although that dynamic does exist, there's also expropriation also going on in the core. There's there's also um, exploitation going on in the south as well. Yes, absolutely. Uh, very very good point. What what I what I try to argue is that um, the relation between the, the this there's a structural relation. Capital requires both exploitation and expropriation. But how exactly it distributes those conditions varies historically. In one period, say the industrial era, 19th century, early 20th century, uh, the division corresponded largely to core versus periphery, uh, as you just noted. But today, that's no longer the case. With the relocation of much industrial manufacturing 
to what would have been called the, the third world or the semi-periphery or, or the BRICS countries, whatever you want to say, uh, you, it, it, it's, it's not the case any longer that, the, uh, that uh, industrial exploitation is uh, located in the core and expropriation is located in the periphery. So we have plenty of exploited wage laborers in what used to be the periphery. And um, with that uh, relocation of manufacturing, we have the creation now of, uh, of huge uh, quantities of very low-waged and precarious service work in the, the countries that once were the, you know, the heartland of industrial exploitation. Just think about the rust belts uh, in, uh, in the United States or uh, in, in northern England, places that you know, used to be the centers of exploitation and of the labor, um, the, the power of, of labor unions that arose there uh, to fight against exploitation. Those are now, in, in some cases, really um, uh, pretty uh, uh, grim areas uh, in, in the U.S., uh, rusted out regions that are uh, heavily, you know, uh, devastated by opioid addiction and, uh, and suicide and, and, uh, and so on. And so capital is, is, is in, in its heartland uh, is now expropriating uh, many people who used to be, quote unquote, merely exploited. Uh, and more and more, I think, the situation arises in which people are simultaneously expropriated and exploited, whereas in an earlier period, they might have been just one but not the other. So there's a scrambling of this uh, map, and it's no longer the case that the that there's the, the neat separation of the two populations, the exploited versus the expropriated. And, you know, that raises a lot of interesting questions about what, what are the prospects for greater cooperation uh, among, uh, in, in terms of, of uh, political solidarity among populations that were previously pitted against one another in ways that sort of corresponded or that had a certain structural basis, let's say, corresponded to a material reality. Um, it, it's not the case, of course, that the fact that we're many people are now in what could objectively be seen as more or less the same boat are therefore subjectively more inclined to unite and fight, <laughs> as the Communist Party of the United States used to say, black and white, unite and fight. Um, Trumpism and, and, uh, and so on uh, gives the lie to, to that idea. But there are lots of, uh, of interesting questions about the present and about the, what, what are, what's the political fallout from the scrambling of this uh, XX uh, nexus, the way in which expo exploitation and expropriation are still structurally necessary, but what turns out to be less necessary, at least, is the idea that each X has to be assigned to a distinct population divided from the other population. In the liberal imagination, Racism tends to be articulated in terms of prejudice, of you know, of distrust of of the other, and that has a certain kind of dehistoricizing effect because it's easy to imagine the xenophobia of various sorts 
precedes capitalism and, and that it could even be a sort of, you know, a, a hardwired into humanity in some sense, you know, a, a certain fear of, of strangers and so on. But presumably an, an implication of your argument is that racism in the pre-capitalist era had really a, a dramatically different logic to it because it performed a different function, perhaps. And perhaps even that the, the term racism isn't quite appropriate for the xenophobia of, of, of earlier historical eras. Right. I mean, there's a, a, a very interesting debate among uh, historians of ideas and so on about whether um, there is something that is properly called racism that pre-exists capitalism or um, or whether uh, we should distinguish between various forms of ethnic antagonism and 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 prejudice and uh, and so on in pre-capitalist eras and and not call them racism. Um, that's uh, you know there's, there's something to to be said on both sides. I myself uh, tend toward the view that we should uh, re- restrict the term uh, racism to those uh, systems that, at, at the level of thought, that posit some sort of permanent block that renders uh, whole populations, uh, you know, congenitally uh, inferior, uh, and so on. And some people think that the Spanish Inquisition, with the idea of the impl- impurity of the blood, that the Jews can't be converted because there's something in in their blood. Uh, You know, some people think that that's the first real sort of uh, racism in that sense that later it it develops when biology uh, uh, becomes the the sort of scientific or pseudoscientific basis for it and and so on. But from my point of view, um, and here I'm on the side of people, uh, of sort of the, the, call it the black Marxist tradition, people like uh, Du Bois or um, Oliver Cromwell Cox, um, who, you know, who think that, that sort of what, what comes first in a sense, it, it, this is maybe the, the kind of pragmatist or materialist way of thinking about it, is that practice comes first and uh, then, you know, thought, in a sense, uh, develops around it and, uh, and, and serves to justify it or, in some cases, to contest it. And so it, it's, the, it's the conquest, it's the enslavement, it's the expropriation. Uh, and, and then the idea of race um, explains why it's okay to treat some people like that especially in a period where the same period where you know everybody's is talking about the the rights of man and and universal freedom and so on and so forth so that race becomes a kind of very powerful trump to say oh yeah everybody is born free and 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 we we all have inalienable rights and so on and so forth except those people those are People that maybe they don't have souls, or or they don't have the the, the same genes, or they, mm, or, or they're like children. Yes, or or they actually originate in in a different um, evolutionary starting point, you know, with poly <laughs> creationism or something. Uh, right. So there's got to be some very powerful way why it's uh, why it's uh, reason why it's okay to do that to them at the same moment when we're saying, you know, this this we're all free. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. 
If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.